This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Alex Sharmos with the AWLS Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about frostbite. First described by one of Napoleon's military surgeons in the early 1800s, Baron Larry, he noticed that soldiers were coming back with frozen body parts and rewarming them, going back out into the field and coming back to rewarm again, and this resulted in higher rates of gangrene. He wasn't able to do too much about this, but he did modernize several amputation techniques. Fortunately for you and I, we've come a long way since then and have other methods to deal with frostbite, although amputation does remain a mainstay of treatment. So fast forward to 1962, frostbite was further classified and described by a mountaineer from Massachusetts named Brad Washburn. His findings were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we still go by this classification system and definition. So like many things in medicine, frostbite is a spectrum. It ranges from frost nip to superficial frostbite, which is then classified as first degree or second degree, and then deep frostbite, which is also first degree and second degree. Frostbite is prolonged cold exposure of a body part that results in tissue freezing. It typically affects the fingers, toes, nose, cheeks, chin, ears, and unfortunately, man parts. Many of you have probably had frost nip, which is essentially just numbness and pallor with a little bit of vasoconstriction of the appendage. And after rewarming, your skin will appear normal afterwards. You shouldn't suffer any uh, further sequelae. Superficial frostbite will have pale and yellow appearing skin, uh, typically will be numb. You might see a little bit of erythema and a little bit of swelling. And after rewarming, you'll see that the skin is still a little bit swollen and red. The difference between superficial first degree and second degree is you will develop some clear to milky blisters after rewarming, and that's kind of the main differentiator there. As we move into deep frostbite, it's just further on the spectrum. You'll have more pallor, more numbness. After rewarming, you'll notice that instead of the clear milky blisters, you'll have hemorrhagic blood-filled blisters, and that's a, typically not a good sign. As you get into the more severe second degree uh, frostbite, you'll have some cyanosis and cap refill will be very delayed. And uh, after rewarming, you might not see those blisters, although you will have very swollen and red uh, appendages. And so just to touch a little bit on the pathophysiology here and why this happens, when your body's cold, you'll shunt blood to the core, and that's to protect vital organs uh, at the expense of you know, your fingers, toes, nose, etc. When you shunt blood, you're decreasing the peripheral circulation, and that causes endothelial damage, which will cause a little bit of a plasma leak. That extracellular fluid then freezes, which causes little ice crystals to form, uh, ultimately resulting in cell lysis, which, as you can imagine, causes a pretty big inflammatory response. That causes more circulatory damage. It's kind of like a perpetuating cycle that results in irreversible ischemia and then tissue necrosis. So what do we do about this? You know, the best way to treat frostbite is to not get frostbite in the first place. And I just want to touch upon a little bit of preventive factors here. So anything that's going to impair your decision making when you're outside in a cold environment, that could be fatigue, dehydration, hunger, altitude sickness. Although the high altitude in itself does not seem to contribute to frostbite, the altered decision making capacity that you might have certainly would. 
And all these factors that can change your decision-making would ultimately result in you not making wise decisions and how to stay warm. So I guess the take-home point here is that if your body is cold, your fingers are much colder. So just a quick point on layering. You want a moisture-wicking base layer like polypropylene, followed by a down or a fleece insulating layer. And then you want something to protect yourself from the wind and cold. That's going to be nylon or Gore-Tex. And you obviously want to protect your face. You want to avoid tight-fitting clothes, uh, tight boots, and especially rings. And this is very true at altitude where your uh, arms and legs will swell. And just to emphasize what the wind chill can do. So, for example, at zero degrees Fahrenheit, an exposed body part can take about two hours to reach uh, frostbite conditions. If you add 15 miles an hour of wind, that's a relative wind chill of negative 19. That brings your time down to about 33 minutes. If you're in a very windy environment like a storm uh, with 55 mile an hour winds, you're looking at a negative 32 degree uh, wind chill factor. And that takes only 11 minutes for an exposed body part to become frostbitten. So this is uh, certainly worth keeping in mind in terms of uh, protection from the elements. And also just to emphasize the importance of staying very, very hydrated and to stay up on your calories when you're out in a cold environment, because keeping your resting metabolic rate uh, as high as it's going to be during these outings is um, really going to make a difference in terms of uh, being able to control your body temperature. So let's get into field management of frostbite. So there's a couple things to keep in mind that are pretty important in terms of overall prognosis. The most important rule being if there is any risk of refreezing the appendage that's affected, do not thaw in the field. And that can seem a little bit counterintuitive, but you need to remember the pathophysiology here. And if you thaw and freeze and thaw and freeze, you're going to perpetuate this ice crystal formation inflammatory cycle and ultimately put that person at risk of a greater chance of amputation. So assuming you can keep your patient warm, you know, meaning they're at some kind of base camp or shelter of some sort, then you want to submerge the affected appendage in water that's about 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. That's going to be about hot tub temperature for uh, someone without a thermometer. And so make sure that you're consistently checking the temperature of the water that you have the patient submerged in because it will either be too hot initially or it'll get cold very quickly and you want to try to maintain that temperature as much as you can. You can gently circulate the water, you can add a little bit of betadine or disinfectant if you have it, and you want to keep the uh, appendage in there for about 30 to 60 minutes. The skin will start to change color at that time, that's okay. You want to then dry the appendage and treat it basically like a burn. You know, you're going to put aloe vera or some sort of bacitracin on there and then some dry sterile gauze. And you don't want to pop or debride any blisters at the moment. Uh, you can elevate the extremity too, um, provide some aspirin and ibuprofen, which has been shown to help with the inflammatory response a little bit. And then, of course, pain control if you have it. And once your patient's at the hospital, you can consider things like infection control, giving them ANSEF, Tdap. There are certain medications like prostacyclins and nitrates that can help with vasodilatation. And you can consider thrombolytics like TPA, uh, anticoagulation measures like heparin. 
there's several diagnostic techniques in terms of looking into um, prognostic factors for amputation, but it does take about 30 days uh, to fully demarcate tissue to decide uh, what needs to be amputated and what does not. Um, superficial frostbite tends to not have any amputation risks, however, as you get into the uh, deeper stages, some level of amputation is pretty much guaranteed. It's just a matter of how much. And on that happy note, thanks for tuning in and stay warm. Thank you.